and you are so magnificent, far above what our minds can even begin to comprehend. Yeah, Father, you were so merciful and gracious to send us your very own son that we might believe in him and have salvation, that he might die on that cross, bear the punishment for our sins, and that we may be freed from that, to go from being your enemies to now sitting at that table with you and fellowshipping with you. We thank you for that reminder today to be able to take part in the Lord's Supper, to remember our communion with you only because of Christ, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed. I pray, Lord, that we prepare our hearts for that. We thank you for this time now to listen to your word from Pastor Patrick, and I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through him, that we would listen with open ears and receptive hearts to what you have to say, and that we would honor and glorify you as a church family. We thank you for this time. In your son's precious, holy, and worthy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. Thank you to Sam and to the rest of the music team for jumping in and leading us in worship through song. Sam got the call, I believe, this morning because our dear uh, brother Luke is taking care of his wife Bethany, who is sick. So Luke and Bethany, we love you guys. We miss you. We're praying for you. But Sam, thank you for jumping in so last minute and doing such an excellent job leading us before the Lord in song. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I trust that you do, I would invite you to turn with me to Psalm 116, Psalm 116. We finished up Daniel chapter 3 last week, and we have next week at the beach, and then we have a week back here, and then we have a couple weeks that I'm going to be gone, and so I decided instead of jumping right into Daniel chapter 4 and having it be a little bit too split up for us, I wanted to dive into a psalm, a little bit of a standalone sermon, so we'll get back to Daniel in a few weeks, but I wanted to go to the book of Psalms, and specifically, as we've studied the book of Daniel, we've seen the sovereignty of God on display in so many different ways, and then we've been seeing how his people react knowing that God is sovereign, how they react in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial, in the midst of uh, difficulties, and we've been asking the question, how can we act like them, trusting in a faithful God and walking faithfully before him? And one of the answers to that question has been their meditation on the word of God. They have been meditating on the word. The word is just reverberating in their minds, in their hearts. And so as they are living their life out before Nebuchadnezzar and before Babylon, they are trusting in the Lord because they have God's word deeply rooted and hidden in their hearts so that at any moment they can call that back to mind, pray God's thoughts back to him, and let God's word dictate how they would take their steps. And so, what I want to do this morning is I want to study the psalm that we have before us, Psalm 116. But what I want to do is I want to do something a little bit differently. Because we have Daniel chapter 3 just ringing in our minds and our hearts, I want to study this passage in light of what it meant to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because you remember the book of Psalms, most of it was written by the time Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are on the scene. And I believe, and I think that as we even read through it this morning before we dive into the sermon, I believe that we will hear things that they would have had in their minds as they stood before the king and said, we, we can't bow because our God will deliver us. We need to obey him. I think that this psalm would have been their meditation. It might have even been their meditation on that day when the king said, you need to bow down and worship me. And so I want to read this and I want to study this in light of what it must have meant to them 
Uh, because honestly, what it meant to them is what it should mean to us as well, right? The Bible's authorial intent, what it means to them is what it should mean to us as well. So let's read the psalm together, ask God's blessing on our time. And, and I also believe that as we go through this, this will set us up perfectly for our time as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So this is going to be just an amazing time feasting on the Lord and on his word. Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications, because he's inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. The cords of death encompassed me. The terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I beseech you, save my life, or literally deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O oh my soul, because the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits towards me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all of his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Oh, Lord, surely I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all of his people. In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Father, we come before you again on a Lord's day and again opening your word and again coming as needy people. God, we are so desperate for grace, for help. And that's why this psalm is such a blessing because it shows us that you help you give grace. You offer mercy and compassion. You help. So, Father, I pray that wherever we are in life, whatever we're going through, whatever trials we've even brought with us into this room from this last week, that we would hear what the psalmist would teach us about who you are and about how we should live in light of your faithfulness. Father, I pray for anxious hearts to be calmed. I pray for nervous hearts to be given peace. I pray for anyone in this room who is at their wit's end about what to do next, where to turn, what step to take, that they would see what the psalmist did when he was there and that they would do the same. And God, for those that are here that 
have recently been brought through a trial, and maybe they're on the other side like the psalmist is, and they are here this morning to proclaim, you are gracious. God, I pray that they would proclaim that loudly, that they would testify of your amazing kindness. And for all of us who love you, who have been called according to your purpose, for all of us who know you, for those who have been called by you, sons and daughters, forgiven of sin, brought into the family of God, we all have reason to say, you have saved my soul from death. Therefore, I will praise you. So be our teacher. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, things that we don't know, things that we wouldn't understand apart from you revealing those things to us. Grant the gift of illumination that we would understand, that we would perceive, that we would receive, that we would understand the truth and apply it to our lives this day. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray in his name. Amen. Psalm 116 is in the middle of the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is that hymn book of Israel that taught Israel how to worship, why to worship, and this psalm is no different. It's going to teach us this morning specifically about the love that we should have for God, why we should love him and how we should love him. That's really the outline this morning. Why should we love God and then how should we love God? But this psalm is a little bit different than other psalms because other psalms are very generic and general and they give a voice to thousands and to the crowds. But this psalm specifically takes us very deeply into a personal experience. The word I is mentioned 18 times in this psalm. The word me is mentioned seven times in this psalm. The word my is mentioned nine times in this psalm. This psalm is a very personal psalm. And so we are going to see... Uh, we don't know the occasion for the writing of this psalm, which I think enables us to apply it however we are struggling with trials and circumstances. We are going to see why the psalmist loved the Lord and then how the psalmist loved the Lord. So those are our two main headings this morning, why we love the Lord and how we love the Lord. We love God because and we love God by. Okay? So number one, we love God because... And there's three main aspects of why we love God. Number one, we love God because he hears. We love God because he hears. This is verses one through four. I love the Lord. I love Yahweh because he hears. Psalm 115 proclaimed that Israel should trust in the Lord. Psalm 116 is saying, I did trust in the Lord and he heard my cry. I love the Lord because he hears. He's not like the other gods that are idols, that are blocks of wood or stone or metal. Just think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before King Nebuchadnezzar. No, no, no. We love the Lord because he hears. Your statue made out of gold doesn't hear anything. Our God hears. We will call upon him because he hears. God actually hears. So often we struggle with this reality. We think that we have to add something to our prayers. We think that we have to add something to what we're saying. Maybe we have to say it in a specific way. We have to be eloquent in our prayers or else God's not going to hear us. Maybe we're like that little boy who right before Christmas when he was asking his parents for his Christmas presents, he knelt down by his bed and asked his dad if he could pray with his dad. And he yelled at the top of his lungs, Dear God, please give me a red bicycle. And his dad said, Son, you know that you don't have to yell because God can hear you. He's not hard of hearing. And the little boy said, oh, I know God's not hard of hearing, but grandma next door is. <laughs> Maybe we're like that. We think if I, 
If I do, to, do something, I add to my prayers. I, I do something to get God's attention. Maybe we read 1 Kings 18 with the prophets of Baal cutting themselves, dancing before the Lord, and we say, that's foolishness, that's nonsense, but functionally we do the same thing. Not the psalmist. The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he hears. Jeremiah 33, 3. God says, call to me and I will hear you. Call to me and I will answer you. That's it. Just call to me. Just cry out to me and I will hear. Psalm 65, verse 2. The psalmist says, oh, you who hears our prayers. You hear our prayers. The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he hears. He hears me. And notice, he begins the entire psalm by saying, I love the Lord. And so my question to you this morning is, can you say that? Do you love the Lord? Often we say, I believe in God. That's great. But do you love God? Because the demons believe in God as well. You remember the demons know that there is a God. They believe that God's real. They believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved. But they do not have saving faith. What sets saving faith apart from non-saving faith. The difference is your love for Christ. The demons know all the right facts about God. They believe all those facts are true, but they hate those facts being true. Believers know the right facts about God. They believe that those facts are true, and they love that those facts are true. They love Jesus. Do you have a fervent exhilaration toward God? Do you love him? Notice also in verse 1, the psalmist does not say, because I love the Lord, he hears my prayers. It's not God hears because of my love for him. If our prayers were grounded in our love for God, that'd be an incredibly shaky foundation. But our love for God is grounded in the fact that he acts first. He hears us. It isn't because I love him that he hears me. I love him because he hears me. Prayer isn't based on some ritual that we would make up. It's based on a relationship with the Lord. Thomas Mann, an old uh, preacher, the pastor for uh, Augustus Toplady, that was his pastor when he was doing music, the guy who wrote um, Rock of Ages. Thomas Matton said, prayer is a conversation of a loving soul with God. It's conversing with God and it's crying out to him. And so the psalmist says, I love the Lord because he hears. He hears my voice. He hears my supplications. Verse 2, he has inclined his ear to me. That word inclined means to stretch out or to bend low. He doesn't say to us as he stands there in heaven, hey, come up to me. Hurry up. I can't hear you. Find a way to get to me and then I'll talk to you. No, he bends down to us. He condescends to us. He hears us. Therefore... I shall call upon him as long as I live. Because he hears me, I'm going to just keep on talking. I'm going to keep on praying. I'm going to keep on asking because I know he hears. This is where the psalmist begins. He begins, even though we see that he's in the midst of a lot of difficulties, he begins by saying, I love the Lord because he hears. He begins by what he has, not what he doesn't have. Often we focus on what we don't have. This makes us so discontent, so dissatisfied. What about what God has given? What about what God has done? Often we focus on God isn't giving me. God isn't allowing me. God isn't getting me out of the trial. God isn't. God isn't. The psalmist begins by saying God is. He is hearing me. He has heard me and he always will hear me. Don't focus on the, those privations. Focus on the provisions. Focus on what God has given 
as you cry out to him. Verse 3, we find that this psalmist was in the midst of a very, very challenging ordeal. Some people would say that he was uh, physically about to die on his deathbed because of sickness. Some people say that it was some military thing where he was about to be killed uh, in the fields of battle. The cords of death, verse 3, whatever it is, they're the cords of death encompassing him. The terrors of Sheol came upon him. And he was distressed and filled with sorrow. And then it says in verse 4, Then I called upon the name of the Lord. So all these terrible things happened, and because those things happened, that's when I called upon the name of the Lord. Then, after all this bad stuff occurred, then I brought my request to the Lord. Meaning, if all those bad things hadn't happened, he wouldn't have brought his request to the Lord. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? We, we said, if we could go back and ask them, would you like to go back and have none of this fiery furnace ordeal happen? They would say, no. It was because that ordeal happened that we saw God's faithfulness on display. So to here, trials always force us to the end of ourselves. And so this man says, after the cords of death encompass me, after terrors of Sheol come upon me, after I have distress and sorrow, that's when I call. So brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you, if you are at a place where you just have been hit by wave after wave after wave of trial and suffering, and you are just saying, okay, enough's enough. I'm trying to just come up gasping for air. I would, I would just plead with you, call upon the name of the Lord. Do what the psalmist does. Call upon the name of the Lord and say, here I am at verse 4, word 1, then. I'm in the middle of it, I'm in the thick of it, and then I call upon the name of the Lord. And God will find you, he will hear you, he will save you. I called upon the name of the Lord. My Bible says, then I called. It's an imperfect tense, so it's, I kept on calling. I kept on calling, meaning this isn't a one-stop shop of help, and then it's all fixed, right? That's how we want it to go, usually. In the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of difficulty, we often go, okay, God, I've come to the end of myself. I realize I cannot do this. I can't do it on my own. I need your help. Please help me. Help. And then we expect it all to go away, and it doesn't. I kept on calling, I kept on calling, I kept on calling, I kept on calling. Because God kept on answering by saying, wait, trust, wait, trust. Think about Daniel, his three friends on the plains of Dura, maybe even reciting this, I called upon the name of the Lord, help. I kept on calling upon the name of the Lord, help. Literally, the cords of death are encompassing them. The terrors of the grave are encompassing them. The fiery furnace is being heated up t seven times harder than it normally is. And they say, God, I beseech you, save my life. Save my life. Our God loves to give mercy. Our God longs to give mercy. One of the realities of these first four verses God never grows tired of hearing from you. I know that that's hard to believe because we know who we are, right? We know that we annoy ourselves sometimes, right? God never gets annoyed from us, never gets annoyed by us. If you are an honest parent here this morning, you will attest to the reality that you absolutely adore your children, but there is a point at which you need to say, I just need time away, right? Just close the door, the incessant 
Why? 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 Just pause. We need to stop. I need to take a deep breath. And often we take that feeling and we put it on God, our Heavenly Father. As if God is going, you again? Brothers and sisters, God never says that. He never feels that. Dane Ortland says it this way. Whatever is crumbling all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this truth remains undeflectable. God's heart for you. God's heart for the real you is gentle and lowly. So go to him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, he's there. He lives there, right there, and his heart is for you. Not on the other side of it, but in that darkness, and it's gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him, and then he ends with this statement. If you knew his heart, you would. So, working backwards, one of the reasons why we don't go to the Lord is because we don't know his heart. Or maybe better said, we know his heart, but we don't really trust it. We don't really trust that God, you're really like that. I know you say you're like that, but come on, really? He's too good to be true. And we just go, no, that can't be real. I think that when we get to heaven, we're going to realize, man, we should have prayed a lot more because God was constantly saying, I'm here. Luke 18, that woman wearing out the judge, just come to me, wear me out because I want to answer you. I want to save you. Reason number one for why the psalmist loves the Lord. He loves God because God hears. Reason number two, he loves God because God saves. God hears and God saves. End of verse four, he says, save my life. And the answer is given, yes, I will. He saves. This is verses five and six. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Gracious and righteous. God jumps in to save the psalmist. And notice the psalmist doesn't offer anything in return. He doesn't say, here's what I can offer to to, uh, bring you to save me. Here's what I can offer to aid in your deliverance. He says, I can't help. I don't know if you've ever heard that that old-fashioned spiritual platitude of God helps those who help themselves. That's just nonsense. Those are the people that God says, go ahead and try. If you want to try to help yourself, God will say, go ahead and try. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God saves those who say they cannot help themselves. And so here's the psalmist saying, I can't help myself. I I can't help in anything here to save myself. Will you do the work? And God says, yes. We sing it often. Abide with me, that beautiful old hymn. Help of the helpless. Abide with me. Help of the helpless. God is gracious. He's a helper. Verse 5, he's gracious, he's righteous. That's an interesting pairing in the Old Testament that doesn't show up very often. He's gracious, but he's just and righteous in giving that grace. He's not unfair in the giving of his grace. He's compassionate, says, yes, our God is compassionate. Your Bible might say merciful. He's approachable. He's not a stoic sovereign. He's gracious. You don't have to meet him halfway. You don't have to twist his arm to come help you. He loves you and he wants to serve. He wants to save. He wants to help. Thomas Goodwin, the old Puritan pastor, said it this way. That which keeps men off from the Lord, from coming to him, is that they know not Christ's mind and heart. The truth is, he is more glad of us than we could ever be of him. 
The father of the prodigal was the forwarder of the two to that joyful meaning. Have you a mind? He that came down from heaven, as himself says in the text, to die for you will meet you more than halfway, as the prodigal's father is said to do. Oh, therefore, come unto him. Come unto him. This psalm is all about God doing the work. Fourteen times the name of uh, our God is used. The covenant-keeping name, Yahweh, is used. God is the main actor. The psalmist just says, help. And God says, I would love to save. I would love to save. Verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. So he's gracious, he's righteous, he's merciful, he's compassionate, and he preserves the simple. That word preserves is that word that we get the, the imagery of the hedge being put around somebody to protect them. Uh, a hedge that would have thorns and, and different defenses to, to make sure that no one could get into that person, that individual. So it's a shield. It's, it's a preservation around you. But there's something interesting in verse 6 that I absolutely love. The psalmist says, the Lord preserves the simple. That word for simple is a, a word that means foolish, ignorant, naive. It's not a good word. When you're called a simple person in the Old Testament... You're called an idiot, right? You're being called an absolute idiot. And usually, when you see the word simple, it's a word that has reference to, and you made a mess out of your own life. You mess things up because of your simple-mindedness. It has a beautiful picture to it. Hebrew is a picturesque language. It gives words have pictures to them. And this word, simple, is the word that means an open door. So you have an open door in your mind, and anything can go in and anything can go out. The good stuff goes out, the bad stuff comes in. You have no delineation, no discrimination about what's good, what's bad. And so the Lord preserves the simple, meaning if you find yourself today in a mess that you made, which I think is the majority of us, right? You made the mess. How often do we say, God, I know I made the mess. I'm sorry. I messed up. I'll get myself out of this one. Sometimes we think, because I made the mess, and I know I made the mess, I did this to myself, it's my sin, it's my selfishness, it's my foolishness, I did this to myself, we so often think, God's not going to help me because I made the mess, right? Now, you have to sit in the bed that you made. You have to do this. That's not our God. What does our God do? He preserves the simple. If you made the mess, cry out to God and say, God, help, I made the mess. Preserve my life. And then the psalmist says, I was brought low. I was brought low. So the beginning of verse 6, I made the mess, God still preserved me. The ending of verse 6, I was brought low. That's a passive verb. Somebody did the acting upon me. It wasn't my fault. Somebody messed up my life. Somebody did something to me, and God saved me out of that. So no matter what your experience, if you did this to yourself or if somebody else did this to you, God preserves and saves both. No matter what your experience is. No matter what you're going through, God will save you out of it. In John chapter 10, no one can take you out of the hand of God. So this, really, verse 6 just kind of has the entire spectrum of all the suffering and experiences you may be going through. It's interesting. In the Book of Common Prayer in the late 1500s, when um, the Americas were beginning to become a thing, become a, a reality, um, based off of the Word of God, there were different psalms for different seasons of life, different experiences that you would go through. And you would pray through the psalm based off of the experience you were going through. And so they attached psalms to different experiences. And they attached Psalm 116 to be read at the delivering of a child. So if you have given birth, you were supposed to read Psalm 116 
right after giving birth, which I just love. The woman can say with just absolute authenticity, the cords of death encompass me. The terrors of Sheol came upon me, and I was in distress and sorrow, all because of this precious, cute little baby, right? But God saves no matter what, no matter what experience. And no, I, I find it comical that uh, this psalm was used and read and recited and prayed after childbirth. I think it's a good application of the reality that no matter where you find yourself, whether it's simple issues, whether you made the mess yourself, or whether it's something that someone else did to you, you are in a place where God can preserve you. God saves whatever experience you go through. But notice the psalmist would not know these attributes about God, being gracious, righteous, and compassionate if he had not gone through the experience. You learn these attributes not by reading books, but by living life. Yes, you can learn about them by reading books, but you, you learn them by going through the school of hard knocks, as it were, right? Living life. So can I ask you this morning, where have you been brought low like the psalmist? He says, I was brought low, and he saved me. Where have you been brought low such that God in his grace is about to give you help, and you can see he's gracious, he's righteous, and he's compassionate? Maybe you would say with the psalmist, yeah, but I'm the simple one. I brought this upon myself. It's my sin that made this mess, so let me fix this mess for myself, and then I'll go to God. So often people think that about church. Let me clean myself up and then I'll go to church. No, no, church is where you clean, get cleaned up, right? Church is where the cleansing happens, not you cleaning yourself up, but God cleansing you. Dane Orland says, when we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because we know exactly how he will receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl or scold. He doesn't lash out like many of our parents did. And all of this restraint on his part is not because he has a deluded view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we're just aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. His restraint flows from his tender heart for his people. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. He's been gracious. The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he hears and because he saves. The third reason that he loves the Lord is because he satisfies. He hears, he saves, he satisfies. This is verses 7 through 11. I love the Lord because you hear me. I love you because you save me. And I love because you satisfy me. Verse 7, return to your rest, O my soul. He's preaching to his soul. We have to tell ourselves what reality is, not what our circumstances dictate it to be. So he says, you can find rest in the midst of all of the difficulties you're going through. You can find rest. So return to your rest. Literally in Hebrew, it's return to your rests, plural. It's a multiplicity of rest. No matter what I'm going through in life, I can find peace. Martin Luther translated this verse, be content again, O my soul. Be content again. Just imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hands tied behind their back, sitting on the ground, in the dust, feeling the heat of that furnace, saying, oh Lord, I beseech you, save my life. God is gracious, he can deliver, he can save. And then one of them just saying, return to your rest, O oh my soul. 
Don't be anxious. Return to your rest. God has dealt bountifully with you. He's given you peace that's not of this world, peace that surpasses all understanding. Psalm 16, verse 6, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Just think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sitting back to back saying that. The Lord's dealt bountifully with us. He's given us such kindness. He's cared for us in ways that we could never possibly imagine. Therefore, like Polycarp said, I can't turn my back on him now. He's never stopped loving me and caring for me. How could I turn my back on him now? He saved me. Verse 8, you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. So the psalmist says, I've been rescued from a lot of different things. I've been rescued from death. I've been rescued from sorrow. I've been rescued from stumbling. I've been rescued in a saving sense, big, big capital S saving. I've been saved. And then little s, I've been saved. I've been saved in both ways. God does all that work in saving me. So, verse 9, this is his resolution. Because you have saved me, I want to walk. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I want to follow you because you've saved me. This is his resolution. And we'll see that he's going to keep it in the second half of this psalm. Then he says this, verse 10 and 11. I believed when I said I'm greatly afflicted. And I said in my alarm, all men are liars. So he begins by saying, you satisfy my soul. You've given me rest. You've given me, uh, you've dealt bountifully with me. You've cared for me. You've satisfied me. So you heard me. You saved me. You satisfied me. But then he says these two verses. I believed when I said I'm greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. There's kind of two main schools of thought as to what this might mean. Option number one is that he is reminiscing on what he said in the midst of the trial. And he's saying that it was a very foolish thing to say. He's saying that he said something extreme in his sorrow. He said, all men are liars. Basically, I just, I hate everyone. And he's going back and he's saying, God, you were still gracious in the midst of that reality. Even when I said something that I shouldn't have said. Which, I, I like that interpretation. I agree with that interpretation biblically. That's not an unbiblical statement, right? I think my favorite place to go to is Job 6.26, when Job uh, speaking to his friends as his friends are rebuking him. And Job says, do you see what's happened to me? Uh, the words of a despairing man are but wind, right? Why, why are you criticizing me for my words when you know I'm a despairing man? And these words, just let them go. They're wind words. They're just, I speak them. At the end of his life, he's going to regret saying them. But in the middle, you don't need to rebuke those words. So some people would say that the psalmist is saying, though I said things that were untrue, that were a little bit extreme, God never left me, and my faith never ultimately failed. So I think that that's a true statement. I actually think I would go with interpretation number two. Interpretation number two of verses 10 through 11 is that people around him in the midst of his sorrow and suffering were telling him, your God can't deliver you. You've been abandoned. Your God can't deliver you. He says, I'm greatly afflicted. I believed, even when I was greatly afflicted, I kept on clinging to you, saying, God, you can save. God, you can help. I'm greatly afflicted. And everyone around me said, your God's abandoned me. Your God's left you. Your God doesn't know you're here. Your God doesn't care. And that's why he's saying, all men are liars. They, they actually have proven to not be true in what they said. Psalm 60, verse 11. Give us help against the adversary, because deliverance by man is in vain. Man can't help. 
Psalm 118, verse 8, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Paul actually quotes this verse in 2 Corinthians 4.13, saying, I believed and therefore I spoke. So in the midst of our distress, we should believe in the Lord and we should speak what's true. So I think it probably the latter could be the former interpretation. But if it is the latter interpretation, imagine what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have been saying when King Nebuchadnezzar said, who will deliver you out of my hand? Maybe they quoted verse 10. Yeah, we're alarmed, but all men are liars because God can deliver. Our God can deliver us. Our God can do it. Our faith compels us to speak to God about God. And faith doesn't require much of us. It just pleads and asks much of God. It pleads and asks much of God. His faith may be being questioned, but it's being preserved by God. And it's only when we're brought to the end of ourselves that we can say something like this. We can say, God, I need help. Please be my deliverance. We need to remember past deliverances and draw fresh assurances from those deliverances. We need to go back and remember, just like the psalmist is doing, past deliverances and remember it's going to happen again. What God did for the psalmist, he will do for you. And he has already, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he has already loved you in this way. Love God because he hears, he saves, and he satisfies. But the psalm doesn't end there. Verse 12 through the end, verse 19, the psalmist now moves to saying, what should I do for the Lord? How should I act? I love him because of what he's done for me. Now what should I do for him? So point number one, God loves because he hears, he saves, and he satisfies. Number two, we now love God back. We love God. We, we serve him by doing three things. First, we love God by grateful supplication. Grateful supplication. This is verses 12 through 13. God delivered him, and this leads him to act. And so he starts by saying in verse 12, What shall I render the Lord? What shall I give to the Lord? Look at what God has done to me. For all of his benefits towards me. He has loved me. He has cared for me. What shall I do for him? What shall I give to him? It's a great question. What, what can you give to the person who has everything? What, what can I do? Verse 13, he resolves to do something. I shall. This is a resolution. I shall do this. And he says this. I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Cup of salvation, that phrase, this is the only place in the Old Testament where that exact phrase is used. Uh, there's other phrases that are used that are almost identical, but they're different. This one says literally cup of salvations. Again, it's in the plural. All of the ways that you're saving me, not just salvation, big capital S, but all the little salvations as well. God is saving us in all these different areas. So what is the psalmist saying when he says, I will lift up the cup of salvation? Again, I think that there's two main interpretations here. Interpretation number one, and I, this is actually the most common interpretation, of I will lift up an offering. The cup of salvation to the Lord is an offering to the Lord. Based off of you saving me, I will give you an offering. So it's giving God something special. It could be pouring out of an offering that can, contains something like oil or wine, could be a form of the drink offering in Leviticus 23 and gratitude for salvation. Again, that's not an unbiblical idea, and I'm sure that he's doing that. 
But I think because of the way he says, lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord, I, I would go with interpretation number two, which I just find astounding. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you something. He says, in reference to what could I possibly do to repay you? How could I possibly repay God? He says, I'm going to go back for more. I'm going to go back for more. If you want to love God, you do it by making much of what God does best. So you say to him, you save like no one else saves me. So can you do it again? In fact, the word lift, it could mean lift like picking up something. But most often in the Old Testament, it's not lifting but taking. Uh, it's taking upon yourself or holding tightly to yourself. In fact, this word is used in the Ten Commandments, right? Do not take the name of the Lord you got in vain. That's the Hebrew word here, nasa. Don't, don't take to yourself. So I think, in my mind, what he's saying here is, I will take that cup of salvation, and I will take it again and again and again, and I will keep on calling on the name of the Lord again and again and again. What's the best way to repay God who saves, who loves, who is gracious? Just keep going back and asking for more and asking for more and asking for more. If you're a grandparent here this morning, and your grandkids come up to you and they say, Dear Grandma and Papa, you are the giver of all good gifts. You never do anything wrong. And I just love that whenever I come over to your house, you give me gifts, you give me food, you just keep giving me things over and over again. And I'd like to come over to your house and get some more things from you. Would you say, how dare you just talk about you? How dare you think about more things that you want from me? How dare? No, you would say, I am, aren't I? <laughs> right? You can see, I, I reached the level of awesome grandparent, right? And now I just get to ship you back when you're being bad, and you just think I walk on water, right? You would never look down on your grandkids and say, why do you think that way about me? That's so selfish of you. No, you're giving extravagantly because you love them saying they give extravagantly. It's the same reality with our God. If I owed you... $100,000. May that never happen. Let's say I owe Sam $100,000. And I go up to Sam and I say, Sam, it's time for me to repay you. Can I have $100,000 more? That's what the psalmist is doing here. Right? The psalmist is saying, my repaying of you is to say, can I have more? Because I know you have an endless supply of grace to give. This is what Hebrews 11 says, 11 verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever comes to God must believe that he is. So you have to believe God exists. And then what is the second definition of faith? And you must believe that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. You have to believe that you're going to get something out of this because you follow him and you love him. So going back to him and saying, I know I'm going to get something from you because of who you are. That's the first way that we repay our amazing God. So seek him, go to him, run to him, ask more of him. The psalmist says, the first thing that I'm going to do in response, in grateful gratitude to what you've done, is bring my supplication with gratitude and gratefulness. We love God by, number one, grateful supplication. Number two, we love God by sacrificial service. 
We love God by sacrificial service. This is verses 14 through 16. Oh, may I pay my vows. I shall. I shall. I resolve to pay my vows to the Lord. So if you liked interpretation number one for the last section of giving something to the Lord, don't worry. We got you here. Verse 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord. Whatever I offer to him, and I think the vow that he has in mind is verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I will follow him. I will walk after him. I'm going to do this. This isn't spiritual blackmail. This is gratefulness. This is gratitude. This is because God in his grace has saved me, right? I have been bought with a price. I'm not my own. So I want to glorify the Lord with my body, and I want to give to him. This might be giving of time, money, resources, excitedly serving, uh, sacrificially giving. He says, I'm going to pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all of his people. I want everyone to see how amazing my God is. These verses, verse 13 and 14, are very, very similar to what Jonah said in Jonah 2.9. I think Jonah was probably thinking about this psalm when he was in the belly of the whale, or the fish, the great fish. And then we get to verse 15, which is a very well-known verse. It's one of those, you know, refrigerator magnet verses. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Kind of weird, though. Haven't we been talking the whole time about being delivered from death? We've been saying the whole time that God rescues, he delivers, he saves. So why this now? I think it's because the psalmist's perspective has been completely changed by God's grace. He thought, oh no, I'm going to die. God, please save me. And somehow it would be an unloving thing of God to let me die, or somehow it's an unloving thing of God to allow me to go through a trial that might kill me. And now he realizes, actually, no, those trials are not an unloving thing of God. They're a gracious gift of God. Death is never an accident. So if the psalmist had died, it would have been a good thing. It would have been God allowing it to happen. And in context, the psalmist is saying that God never allows his children to go through harm because he doesn't love them. They're precious to him. That word precious is a word for costly metals, something that's so precious that you want to keep and hang on to. And so he's saying, even if it costs my life, I will still pay my vows. I will still walk with the Lord. I will still obey. Again, I I think that this absolutely was on the mind of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his loved ones, of his godly ones. We will not bow. We may die, but that's a precious thing to God because God loves us. So even if God doesn't deliver us from the fire, we won't bow. Even if it kills us, we will obey. Philippians 1.21, it's better to have Christ than to die. We want Christ. So life is Christ, to live is Christ. Death is gain because we get more of him. The death of a believer is never wasted. It's never squandered. So I think in context, this verse makes perfect sense. And then he continues. Since I'm not dead, since God did spare my life, verse 16, oh Lord, surely I'm your servant. I'm your servant. It's a word for slave. I'm your slave, the son of your handmaid. But you've loosened my bonds. I'm a slave, but I'm a slave with no fetters. I'm a a servant with no chains. I've been bought with a price, therefore I'm not my own. I must glorify the Lord with my body. But just like the disciples said in the upper room, uh, or Jesus said to the disciples, no longer do I call you slaves. I call you friends. There is just simply nothing more joyful than to serve a God who needs no service. There's nothing better than that. And so the psalmist says, I am your servant, but you don't need me. And I will graciously do whatever you ask of me. So... 
Grateful supplication, number one. We love the Lord by grateful supplication. We love the Lord by sacrificial service. And finally, number three, we love the Lord by joyful satisfaction. If God is a satisfying God, then we love the Lord by joyfully being satisfied in him. Verse 17 through the rest of this chapter. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I want to praise the Lord. I shall pray, pay my vows. Verse 18 is the exact same as verse 14. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all of his people in the courts of the Lord's house in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. So in the, in the middle of the temple, if this was written uh, Solomon's day and afterwards, it would have been in the temple. If it was written before that, in the tabernacle. But in the courts of the Lord's house and in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. That's the word hallelujah. Everyone praise the Lord for who he is and for what he's done. This is a resolution to be grateful and to be publicly grateful, to call upon the Lord in praise and to call others to boast in him as well. That's what that word hallelujah means, to boast in the Lord, to praise him and to boast in him. That word hallelujah is 28 times in the Old Testament, telling everyone around you to do this with me. This is what the Lord has done for the psalmist. What has God done for you? This is what God has done for the psalmist. What has God done for you? I think if we were to sum up this psalm for us, we were lost. We were hopeless. God in his grace saved us. And therefore we will return, not by saying, here, I'll repay you, but by saying, I can never repay you. So here's my gratefulness. Here's my gratitude. And I think that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think that they probably had this psalm just ringing in their mind and their hearts. I think they memorized this. I think that they would recite this to one another. But I think that there's a more important person that I know recited this psalm. The reason why we know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be very familiar with this psalm is because Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 fits in a section of scripture called the Egyptian Hallel. It's the Egyptian Hallel, meaning this is praise for what God did when we were in Egypt. And it's recited, it's actually sung every year at Passover. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, sung every year at Passover. So every year, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have sung these psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. Every year, Daniel would have sung them. And then on a Thursday night, 2,000 years ago, Matthew 26 says that there is a much more important individual who sung this song. Jesus sang this hymn. You remember Matthew 26 says that after being in the upper room, after partaking of the Passover, Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples. And the hymn that he would have sang would have been this, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Jesus would have sung Psalm 116, the night before he was betrayed. Just think about him singing this song. You hear me, Yahweh. The cords of death encompass me. The terrors of death and the grave are upon me. I found distress and sorrow. That's what he says in the Garden of Gethsemane. I was deeply grieved and distressed and sorrowful to the point of death. Yet God is gracious. I've been brought low, but he saves me. You've rescued my soul from death. Precious 
in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godliness. Jesus would have prayed all of these different prayers. He would have recited the psalm saying, God hears, God saves, God satisfies. So we should cry out to him, we should obey him, we should rejoice in him. He sang Psalm 116 so that we could sing it. He himself led in singing Psalm 116. And because he sang it long ago and then went to the cross, we can sing it with hope of being preserved and of being saved. We can take that cup of salvation because Jesus took the cup of wrath and drank it to the dregs so that we could be forgiven and saved forever. Jesus sang this song in the midst of his greatest distress so that we can sing this song in the midst of our distress knowing God always loves us. He's never working against us because he already crushed his son in our place so that we could be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, that's why we gather. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's why we gather together every Lord's Day to remind each other God is no longer against us as our judge, but for us as our Father. All because of Jesus Christ. So if you know that God hears you, saves you, and satisfies you, and you respond by saying, I want to gratefully pray back and cry out to you. I want to give my life to serve you. And I want to rejoice with gratitude in who you are. Then these elements are for you to hold, to enjoy, to feast on, knowing that Jesus Christ is your soul's greatest satisfaction. Father, thank you so much for Psalm 116. Thank you for the realities of preservation that we see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have known, would have recited even before the king. And then our great high priest reciting on that Thursday night in the upper room after partaking of Passover, after breaking the bread, after drinking the cup, singing this song before walking to the Mount of Olives. How verse 15 must have just settled in his soul precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, knowing that his death would bring about the salvation of his people, of his sheep brought to his fold. God, that's such an amazing reality, and we want to, just like the psalmist say, we love you because of what you've done, and now we want to love you back, not in some way of repaying, because we could never repay you, but we want to live for you. Because of everything you've done for us, we want to love you back and simply say thank you. May we do that now as we meditate on your body and your blood being broken and poured out for us. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. At this time, I'm going to ask our men to come forward and to grab uh, the bread. They're going to pass that out again. Uh, please, if you are a uh, believe in Jesus Christ, you love the Lord. Take these, hold them. We'll take them all together as a church family, so just hold on to them. And we will celebrate as we feast on the Lord and all that he's done for us. And while we are passing these out, we would love to sing and respond with great affection to the Lord for all that he has done for us. So let's sing together in thanksgiving to the Lord. Mm -hmm.